0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Tell Great Stories, the podcast that looks back at some of Unbound Theatre's past projects and productions. My name is Andy Shaw and today we will be discussing the 2019 production of The Doctor's Dilemma. I played Mr. Cutler Walpole in the show, and I am joined by some of my fellow cast members.
1: Hello, my name is Hannah Rogers, and I was the director of the Doctor's Dilemma.
0: Hello, I'm Chris Roby, and I played Sir
2: Calenzo Rigid.
3: Hello, my name is Stephanie Hull, and I played Mrs. Jennifer Dubedat.
2: Hello, my name is Gareth Johnson, and I played Mr. Louis Dubedat. Oh.
0: Hello, my name is Andy Favor, and I played Sir Patrick Cullen. Okay, uh, so. First question is to, is to Hannah. What drew you to this play and inspired you to direct it?
1: So I was um, following a actor by the name of Tom Burke, who I was studying and looking up his work. And one of the plays I found he was in was called The Doctor's Dilemma. I luckily found a, a trailer on YouTube. Absolutely fell in love with the trailer, loved to what acting performances i could see so i immediately went and purchased myself a copy of the doctor's dilemma loved it read it again about t- two or three more times and then approached uh, dario uh the theater director and asked him when i when and if i could t- direct this lovely play and it all goes from there
0: fantastic okay and uh, Chris, as the eponymous Doctor, uh, can you give us a brief summary of the play and what is the titular Dilemma?
4: Surely. So the play is set in the early 20th century before the existence of the NHS and we're presented with different types of doctor. as the poor doctor performing public service, incompetent doctors who are nevertheless well recognised and successful and then the doctor at the heart of the play, who is successful both financially and medically, he's discovered a successful method uh, of treating tuberculosis and indeed has been knighted for this. But given the time, his treatment is only available to a handful of patients. And early in the play, our doctor is introduced to a woman, a woman me, whose husband, who is an aspiring artist, Is suffering from tuberculosis and whom she is desperate to have cured. Attracted to the woman and admiring the artist's work, he agrees first to meet the artist, with indeed some of his fellow doctors, and subsequently he then agrees to take him on as a patient. But then two things transpire. One becomes clear to him and some of his fellow uh, medical men that the artist in question is morally bankrupt. And second, that there is one of the doctor's longstanding associates, a poor doctor, who is suffering from tuberculosis himself. This then forms the heart of the dilemma, as mentioned in the title, and presented to the doctor since he only has the capacity to take on one of these two possible patients. And the dilemma then takes the form Does he take on the artist whom he despises as a human being, but actually sees as being valuable because of his artistic merit? Or does he take on his honest friend, but in one in whom he sees no value to society? There is the added complication, of course, that he believes that if the artist were to die, he will marry the woman. and so he chooses his friend over the artist. And as one would expect, the result is that his friend, whom he treats, um, improves and is cured. The artist rapidly dies. But being the emotionally stunted man he is, it comes as a complete surprise to him that the rather stronger emotional, em- emotionally uh, charged woman uh, does not
0: take him on at all. And is revolted by so he did, he didn't get what he was actually aiming
2: for it <clears throat> after all of that, anyway. Indeed, not no. Well, he did save a good man's <laughs> life, so you know, he got yeah. a slight result from it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> let's not write that off entirely. <laughs> let's, yeah, let's look on the slight positive side there.
4: <laughs> but nowadays, of course, we'd have uh, his treatment would have been universally available, and uh, and both people hopefully would have been
0: saved, okay? So, uh This question is to Steph, Chris and Andy F. Um, This was your first show with Unbound. Can you tell us about your previous work on stage and how you came to find out about this show?
3: Um, Well, I have mainly performed in musicals uh, such as Beauty and the Beast and West Side Story. Mm. Um, And I was lucky enough to train on a six-week course with the National Youth Theatre and became a member of the company. Um, But unfortunately, shortly after that, my confidence had a complete knock. And I hadn't actually done any acting for about five years. Um, So how I came across Unbound was complete luck. Uh, One evening, I just had enough and wanted to try and get my old self back and get back performing because obviously I missed it. Um, And I knew that Queen's Park had a musical theatre choir. And so I, I went online and had a look. And I happened to see the open audition for The Doctor's Dilemma. And I emailed uh, Dario, the creative producer, for more information, plucked up all the courage I had Mm -hmm. and went along. And here I am.
0: (laughs) Brilliant.
4: Yeah, um, I'd done um, amateur drama for some years with a number of different groups in the area. In fact, one one of which I was lucky enough to meet Hannah. Um, and and in, in all those years, with a few exceptions, I had uh, done a of pantomime, fast thriller, that sort of thing. Uh, and I just thought it'd be interesting to try something a bit more meaty, serious. Um, and I, so I just thought I'd have a look and uh, found Unbound by chance uh, on, with the website. And I uh, <laughs> was luck- even luckier in finding it uh, about... Uh, a week before the auditions so <laughs> i just thought i'd turn up and see what happened
0: yeah and I'm, i remember you being very um you learned your lines very quickly as well um is, is that something that you tend to try and do before I just, hard, yeah like? i just
4: like to try and get the lines learned as quickly as possible mm-hmm. because um trying to rehearse uh, rehe- i find rehearsing with the book like right? mm. um quite quite tricky and it it's it always strikes me that there are two phases uh rehearsing with the book in hand and then rehearsing when you're actually trying to behave as a normal person yeah and then, and the longer you get this with the second go is the uh, the, the better it is the
0: absolutely one. yeah because the, the book would act as a as a physical hindrance as well as a it would probably dampen your you know the, the character that you're trying to to portray as well i guess Okay, and the same question to Andy Faber.
5: Yeah, I, I've been lucky enough to be performing in all manner of, gosh, musicals, pantos, fast Shakespeare, you name it, over the last, gosh, 35 years or so. I'm um, lucky enough that that is now my job as a voice actor, um, and I've known the limelight for, gosh, crikey, well over 20 years. Um, I did a lot at the limelight sort of in the late 80s, early 90s, then went away again, and I um, I still kept up quite a few friendships there, and I was chatting to Hannah one day, and she said, "Well, we're doing the we're doing the Doctor's dilemma. Would you come on audition?" And I did, and I'm very glad to say I did because it was marvelous fun, hmm. um, and uh, yes, a real challenge as well. So I'm um, and some wonderful use of language and the lovely characters. So uh, yes, I'm very glad to say I, I, I did it, and I consider it to be a one of my favorite things I've done in the, in the most recent years. I have to say,
0: brilliant, and, and I think we all enjoyed your accent as well. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
5: Dance a crabby old man and and, and um, who was gosh um, the lady who was um, the housekeeper. What's her name? Oh, um,
3: Jackie. Um, Emmy. Jackie. Yes.
5: Yeah. Yes, okay. And my favourite line, calling her an, an ugly old devil, and no mistake. <laughs> <laughs> she's Not an ugly old devil. She's lovely, but it's just such a horrible a cutting line. <laughs>
1: If I may just say, from a from a director's point of view, I was, uh, as I said, I'd not unfortunately not worked with Steph before she came to the audition, but I had worked with uh, Chris Roby and Andy Faber before the before the auditions, and oh. the eclectic mix of talent was just astounding. Um, and unfortunately, we did have more females for than we did male. Um, despite the fact that it is a male or uh, driven play, there is only one, no two, sorry, three female characters in it. However, any advance on three? We any have three advance on three? Uh, going once, I, going twice. <laughs> I, I, um, it was three, three, three mm. females, and um, Steph just blew me away at her audition, and I'm so pleased that all three of you turned up and and were managed to be part of this production.
0: Absolutely. And I think from my point of view I was very impressed with um the professionalism. Um having not worked with Steph, Chris or Andy before. Um and I it to me, it felt like Steph had been doing this the whole time, was really, you know, she came on board and she's she just sort of blew blew it away really. And I thought, yep, yeah, this this is it, this is uh, this is what she does, you know. There's, I would no question in my mind that you, you, you were you'd been away from from the whole thing for about five years.
3: Oh, thank you. That honestly means a lot because, um, yeah, I was uh, inside. I just felt like a big bundle of nerves. I remember when I came to the audition, um, I was literally my my hands and my legs were shaking. I was that nervous. Mm. So yeah, and obviously being back in the rehearsal room, um, it you know felt like. It, it obviously takes time to get your confidence back, so that really means a lot to hear. Thank you. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. I, can, I can remember doing one of the audition pieces with you. I didn't come across yeah. it at all that you were nervous. You
0: were really good.
3: Oh, thank you. All under the surface. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very, well, you kept it well here.
3: Mm. Oh, good. <laughs> good, good. good,
0: Brilliant. Okay, and moving on to Gareth. Um, mm. Your character in the play is at times, uh, shall we say, unpleasant, unpleasant, um, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. but, it's, <laughs> but it's part of a relationship which needs to feel genuinely affecting. How do you approach a dualistic role like this in a play that doesn't settle for easy answers?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it was a really interesting character to play because there's how you judge him by you know normal standards of morality and then there's how you judge how he judges himself within his own mind. Hmm. And it was very clear that this is a character who doesn't view himself as immoral, but very much views himself as amoral. You know, he just doesn't buy into this whole idea of there is a way in which you must behave. There is a you know, a set of rules that you must follow. So all of the things that he does, which really are genuinely quite horrible, in his own mind, he's just saying, no, I reject that. So hmm. what that then means is that it's not that he's immoral and he doesn't, you know, really care for the people he cares about. He just doesn't view it as a contradiction. He is perfectly able to love Jennifer and lie to her and cheat on her and, you know, not really care about, you know, the future, you know, with them because he's so living in the moment that he's never quite worried about the future and when he's off with well, at least one of the other women that he goes with. But let's face it, there was probably quite a few instances of it. When he's off with them, he's in that moment. And Mm. in his mind, it doesn't take away from the love that he has for Jennifer that he's doing all of these other things. And when he's genuinely with her and genuinely feeling those feelings, again, he's so in the moment that what he may have done outside of that moment doesn't really matter you know, in in his mind. And I think getting into his his viewpoint and seeing it like that allowed you to then say, okay, he might have done all these things, but that's not taking away from his perception of what he feels and then sort of playing it like that. Yeah,
0: and I guess particularly at the the, the period that the play is set as well, that kind of behaviour is even more... um, There's a structure of how society says you need to behave and so he he comes across as even more different to that than than he probably
2: would do if it was set nowadays I mean he's absolutely flying in the face of um you (laughs) know what everyone expects of him and then there's the scenes where it sort of all comes out what he's done and Mm -hmm. the doctors confront him about it and he's just completely not phased by it at all he sort of views it as a game and I think it again speaks to how how little he sort of cares about anything other than you know what he's experiencing right now that he knows that this is the person he's got to convince to save his life and he knows that you know he's being confronted by this person and he just sees it as a game he's not remotely concerned for the fact of the implications of what upsetting this this person could be he just wants to win the argument in the moment. And I think that that's really interesting, the way that he treats a very, very serious conversation as just a rhetorical exercise to win, basically. Yeah. Do
0: you think he was concerned about dying at all? Or was that all just part of the game?
2: Um, I, I don't think he was. I, I think he just sort of... he. Yeah, he w- he was more concerned about leaving a legacy than he was about the fact that he was, you know, dying and in a very serious condition. And I think, you know, he probably, you know, died happy that he was going to live on in the, the memory of Jennifer. Hmm. Um, and yeah, again, just so so caught up in himself and his art that yeah, he didn't didn't consider the fact that, yeah, he was gonna die. And even as he was dying, he was just sort of yeah, very, very accepting of it. Hmm.
0: I guess his art is worth more than his own life in his in his mind.
2: Um, I mean, certainly his legacy is,
0: uh, his is legacy. worth is yeah. worth more.
2: <laughs> and, and here's
0: a question for everybody. Um, Bernard Shaw writes in a very didactic way at times. Some scenes read a little like essays. Uh, how do you approach texts which are heavy on technical dialogue? Or the playwright's political views, as either an actor or a director.
4: Um, I certainly had some uh, speeches which uh, looked um, turned around the, um, some of the medical aspects of uh, the the storyline. Mm. And in uh, in those in those speeches, because Bernard Shaw's not really a medical man, he, clearly he had to treat it as a. a in a popular science kind of kind of approach, which then uh, allowed me to present uh, the, the, the the medical facts as though in, in a very simplistic manner, as if I were patronising or talking down to people who um, Rigin would have felt intellectually super, uh, inferior to him, uh, which was probably just about everyone in his in his own opinion. <laughs>
2: yeah i mean i I think I had it slightly easy on the technical dialogue front because obviously my character was you know not not involved in any of that, and whenever he was sort of in his scenes, they were very much emotionally rather than technically driven so it yeah it was nice to sort of be able to you know be really energetic and bring that counterpoint to some of the more more dialogue heavy bits as well
3: hmm. I will say i I was the same in in that Jennifer wasn't a doctor, and so <laughs> I could just listen to everybody else and re- react like I knew what it all meant um, <laughs> yeah. but I I have to say I remember James um, having that monologue which was basically a page in length oh, yeah. and <laughs> how he learned that in such a short amount of time because he took um, the role later on in the rehearsals yeah. I'll, I'll never know how he done that, it was crazy <laughs> I mean I was
1: blown away by, by everybody anyway um, the doctor's from my point of view, had had the really hard task of learning all the medical jargon. Um, what I advised was, if they didn't know what it was, go look it up, um, yeah. go find out about it, study it, um, because then it makes the the words flow easier for you.
5: Yeah, um, it, it was it's, it's one of these things. I always think it's a lovely challenge to have that kind of um, you're given that that type of rhetoric. Uh, in, in a play, because the, especially in the, from the roles of the doctors, oh, they obviously yeah. this is where they sit, this is where they live, um, their expertise and their sort of really very obviously very esoteric uh, expertise, which is not given out to the to the layman very deliberately, um, is where they sort of base their egos and successes and uh, their reputations of many years. And I think um, I love Doctor uh, Shaw's writing anyway, but he has a lovely flow. Um, with it oh. it doesn't sound as if you're pretending anything um it with especially with the part i played it's, it's it was it's one of those parts that's so well written it just yeah. flows off the but you just have to do it it just flows off the page uh and, and you get that, that the feeling of sitting comfortably on your own ego with it uh, or rather on patrick cullen's mm-hmm. own ego not on my, not on my own ego um, but it it's it sort of it, it's just very well put together it's a real gift in, in that sense, um, I've directed various things and, and been in various things where technical language hasn't been as well explained or as well used, and that can be tricky because that can then get in the way. Um, <laughs> you can suddenly sound as if you don't know what the heck you're talking about because it might you might actually not know what you're talking about. But taking Hannah's advice, Hannah's advice exactly, as um, I, I certainly did a lot of Wikipedia yeah. myself. Um, <laughs> Despite having many years ago a semi-medical uh, background, mm-hmm. I still had to do an awful lot of um, brushing up. So it was it was good. It was very it was very good practice to do.
3: Well, you had to do it as well, didn't you, uh, Andy Shaw, sure. mm-hmm. um, yeah. as Walpole? Because I remember there was quite. A, uh, I think about two weeks um, we were going. What is a nuciform sack? Because <laughs> yeah. like, you said it so so often yeah. in like one speech. I think you kept going on about it. And it took weeks because we found articles where it was something, then we found articles where it wasn't actually a thing. So yeah, you really had to research that. And I remember there was another medical word that we we were in a debate over the pronunciation of mm. it. So yeah, I completely agree with having to to really research the words. <laughs> and yeah,
0: yeah, I remember having to uh, to Google how to pronounce various things and and um and as well as understand what it is i think to to, to say it properly with an element of confidence um i think is important even though probably most of the audience Mm. as well have never heard of some of these things and um so maybe it's not so important but i think you still need to come across with the same confidence as if you were that doctor
5: kind of sounds as if he's been saying it all his life hasn't he that's the thing and i I think
2: that's the point is the the audience may not gain anything from you knowing exactly what yeah that term means but they will pick up whether you're comfortable with the text comfortable with the terms mm-hmm. and if you don't know the details of what it is you're saying then you won't deliver it as confidently as if you've you've know, gone away and found out what it was and, and figured out no. not only what you're saying but also what the other characters are no. sort of saying and then how you react to it and what you think of it and I think yeah. having that understanding although it doesn't Directly, the audience aren't going to go, aha, you know, I've now managed to, from that performance, figure out the exact meaning of this medical term. You know, it's never going to happen. (laughs) But the fact that you've got the understanding of it does add to your performance. I mean, I was quite lucky that my character wouldn't know nor care what any of these things mean. So I didn't have to do any of that. But it really came across that the doctors had done that.
0: I think each doctor had to represent their own belief in the situation um with that level of confidence so you had to they're all coming in it from their own angle saying this is how to do it no this is how to do it and so we're kind of like representing a a method which we don't know well we don't actually know what the method is as as people but these doctors know exactly what they're doing and how they were going to do it and you almost had to sort of stand your corner in a way. So for me, the noosiform sack was incredibly important because mm-hmm. as Walpole, I was absolutely convinced this was the only way to deal with this kind of problem. Just get in there, chop this little thing out and then you'll be absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. Um, of mm-hmm. course, not really, you know, all of my contemporaries understood that um, this is probably more of a, a con than anything else because I get to do a very tiny incision and charge them, <laughs> hundreds of pounds for the pleasure <laughs> so so Walpole's onto a, a great thing regardless because nobody could ever say oh I've had my new form sack taken out but actually I feel just as bad um you know, probably an element of placebo there but he he didn't care he was getting the money and and he was I think he was quite convinced in himself that this was actually working and helping these people yeah. so I had to sort of represent that front for for that character
2: I mean I think that's a really interesting point going slightly off topic is the different approaches to morality that come out of the play like you've mm. you've got Louis who is very obviously against the norms of society but then you've got someone like Walpole who is putting people's health at risk and is he doing it entirely out of ignorance that he just isn't you know trained is obsessed with this one thing and is doing a lot mm. of unnecessary procedures, or does he at some point know that he's basically taking advantage of people by, <coughs> you know, doing a, an unnecessary procedure or pushing a procedure mm. when one is not required? But because he's a doctor, because he follows the norms, he will never be judged for that. And then you've mm. got BB, who is be- almost by his own admission not a very competent doctor, but again, because he's posh and able to you know, list distinguished clients, he gets the respect you know, the respect he thinks he deserves, and again, basically has quite a lot of malpractice and you know, probably kills quite a few of his patients. <laughs> but again, he is he is never called up on that. And mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting that you've got the obviously wrong character who is obviously wrong. They don't sort of pull a oh no he was a goodie in the end kind of thing. He is a CAD. Yeah, you know, he doesn't try and justify himself for that. And he doesn't try and say, oh, no, it's more complex. He's just happy being a cad. But then you've got these characters that are trying to hide behind their respectability, who are also doing a lot of damage. And I think that that's a really interesting part of the play. And then obviously you've got Rigin, who, you know are, you know, could be accused of murder. Not in a direct way, but could be. And I think that's, again, really interesting... How you've got all of these different layers of morality going on in the play
4: yeah i, th- I think that uh, the bloomfield bollington character has in, in some of those immensely long speeches um, pr- portray some of the political stances probably that furniture held um, i mean he certainly says how can i make a value judgment um, about the morality of a of a patient given that if I did that, I'd lose three quarters of my, of my paying, my paying Mm. Uh, patients. Just, just because, just because this artist, um, is, is, is morally bankrupt. Um, but he, but he can paint if, if I were to, if I were to reject him on, on the grounds of his morality, then there are three, three quarters of my patients can't, can't paint and can't do anything. And they're morally bankrupt too. They just happen to have a lot of money.
5: Something Bernard Shaw alludes to in that whole series of essays um, in the front of the script, and the the Luciform Sack, as we know, it doesn't actually exist. But uh, (laughs) it's it's almost a symbolic thing. Hmm. Um, It it almost provides a sort of um, placebo uh, a, well, a well-meaning placebo to doctors that don't know actually at that time in history quite what the heck they're doing
2: mm.
5: um mm-hmm. and it is it, it, it's, it's, it's rather sort of it's, it's a typical sure sort of moral it's t- taking a moral standpoint point by standing to one side and throwing something in and just seeing what other people do with it mm. i think mm-hmm. it's quite a sort of a it's a very clever it almost becomes its character in its own self in, in its own right than us if on, sack doesn't it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: So moving on to, um, to the end of the play. This one is for Steph um, because the, the end of the play is emotionally demanding for your character in particular. How do you approach scenes like these and how do you maintain the intensity needed for each performance and rehearsal?
3: Oh, uh, goodness. Yes, it was. <laughs> yes, it was very demanding. Um, it, it was pretty full on from um, the death scene. Jennifer goes from utter devastation um, to the next scene anger sadness being a little bit happier and then complete shock and straight back to anger um, <laughs> hmm. um and but there there was actually a, a six month time jump I, I think um it was six months between those two scenes but yeah. obviously I only had less than a minute to process and get my thoughts and emotions in place so uh once I left the stick Uh, the stage from the death scene, I shook it off literally and uh, zoned in on that feeling of bubbling anger and frustration below the surface. Mm. So that when Jennifer uh, does face the doctor again, the emotions rose more and more until it just exploded Um, and I must admit, I really love performing those kind of dramatic, intense scenes as I'm not a confrontational person. So I really do enjoy digging into those scenes. And I, uh, I, I will admit I, I did enjoy getting all up in, in Chris's face and getting very angry. Sorry, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But as fun and liberating as that is, it's very important straight after those scenes to shake it off and forget those emotions Mm. um, and come back to yourself. So as soon as the curtains closed after the bows, I hugged people, I high-fived people, completely leaving that performance done. Um, And that helps with maintaining the intensity for the next show. Um, otherwise you uh, you kind of keep those feelings and emotions inside yourself and and um, it does take its toll so it's very important to completely leave that performance and come back to yourself if that makes sense
0: kind of kind of a reset button almost yeah yeah yeah. that's interesting so yeah it's it's interesting to hear you say you sort of physically shake yourself off because I suppose you've Mm. got yeah literally two minutes to 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 process through six months of uh well the stages of what grief um yeah from from loss and you go through the anger and acceptance and all of all of those stages within two minutes so and there
3: there was a a quick change as well so (laughs) (laughs) so I quit I quickly changed and then I had to yeah so that's why I done a physical shake it off because I just didn't have time and and if you literally shake all your limbs um then that just kind of resets yourself
0: um so yeah reset compose ready for the next bit yeah
3: you're ready ready to come on and do some more shouting yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay and um this one's for gareth Uh, the performance weekend was a busy one for unbound can you tell us a little about what was going on when the doctor's dilemma debuted at the limelight theater
2: yeah so a great thing about unbound is that it's never doing just one thing yeah, we'll we'll be doing something like this at the same time as, you know, prepping for sketch shows, at the same time as doing audio, at the same time as working for stuff with the council. Um but this was probably one of the busiest days Unbound has um has ever had because we um on the debut performance of Doctor's Dilemma, it was the same day as the WizFizz Festival in um oh, yeah. in Town Centre, and so not only did we have a performance of The Doctor's Dilemma but before we actually had that first thing in the morning was rushing over to the King's Head setting up for Unbound's History of uh, Unbound's Brief History of Britain um which was a sort of short series of you know fact-based funny sketches about Britain and you know particularly its links to the King's Head that we'd been commissioned to do so it it was you know almost literally first thing in the morning we were dashing down there making sure we got all the props together because obviously this is something you know on tour at a location so you've got to make sure you've got everything get it loaded up in a van you know park it get it all set up um because we had quite a few costume changes for that because it was a a number of different um number of different sketches number of different costumes so it's just you know crazy sort of getting that that all set up and And going there. And then as soon as we'd finished that, we then were also taking part in the um, storytelling competition um, as part of WizFiz as well. So it's kind of a case of rush off stage for the last performance of that and go, right, where are we going now? And sort of (laughs) trying to figure out where the venue for the next thing is, because we weren't quite sure where it was going to be. So we're rushing around looking for this tent. And eventually we find it, but we're not quite sure where we're supposed to be going and you know, mm. get get in there. And then by the time you finish that, you're like, right, now I can relax. You go, oh, no, wait, no, there's an entire performance of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> of The Doctor's Dilemma yet to go. So It's not over yet. <laughs> not over yet. I mean, luckily wow. we uh, managed to at least find some time to eat in between that, but oh. it, uh, it yeah, wasn't I re- long.
3: I remember coming in, I think it was the second show. Um, and I just, I just remember walking past, going to the dressing room and seeing you all in the coffee bar, just devouring (laughs) loads of food. Yeah. And, and obviously I, I, I knew that you had other performances, but I didn't realize that it was that much. Um, so bless you, bless you all.
0: That must be exhausting. (laughs) Why do we do it to ourselves?
3: (laughs) Because we love what we do.
0: Because we 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 love love it.
2: it. I mean, genuinely, it was just the funnest day. I mean, it 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 was was. a lot of rushing around and a lot of doing stuff, but it was just great to be able Hmm. to go from performance to performance to performance, doing three very different things. It it was just brilliant. Yeah, brilliant day, really. Certainly um, worth all of the rushing about for. Okay, and, and how do you, actually just, uh, just off the top of my head,
0: how do you how do you sort of mentally prepare for doing such a variety of different things? Do you do you sort of set up your day and go, right, I've got these big three things to do? Um, or do you just sort of dive into it?
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly from my point of view, I think the preparation has already happened long before the, the day of performance. So it's just mm. about having the energy at that point. And mm. the moment you get back into sort of, yeah the the mode of one of these performances it, if you've got it all there and you've got it in your head and you've sort of done all the prep work, it's very easy to get back in the zone for it because the work has been done beforehand. Mm-hmm. so it was really just the coffee at the end to make sure you've still <laughs> got energy by the end of
0: it, yeah. it. Yeah. Well, at least you had a quite a relaxing scene in the the doctor's dilemma. <laughs> yep. you'll, you'll find yeah, a you've got to lie
1: down for a bit the wonderful job that that you guys did trying to move Gareth from the sofa into a chair oh, yeah. was just I mean it took a little bit of work but my it goodness did. was it worth it because I have to admit that was very beautifully done, very well handled there I must admit
0: yeah it's difficult thing trying to make it look like you're picking up a, a dead body. A dead body. When I, I can't remember how much Gareth you assisted in though that maneuver, whether you were slightly pulling yourself up or whether it was all our work. I can't quite remember now.
2: I think I provided a, a base point of support, but I was I was not providing any yeah, any movement, but mm. I was sort of making sure I didn't fall over. <laughs> no, that's
1: it. You have to and I think there's you 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 uh you gathered a level of trust between uh, the... I think there was three of you, wasn't there, doing it? I think there was two doctors and and, and Gareth, and you, uh, you established a good level of trust. So Gareth had to trust that, obviously, when you picked him up, you weren't going to drop him, and that you were when you put him down, that you weren't going to put him onto a stable surface, that he wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, and luckily, we did avoid any unfortunate accidents or any... Uh, Actual broken bones or anything of that nature. (laughs)
2: Yes, I I was waiting for the comedy moment when no one was holding the chair and there were no brakes on it and and it would just sort of slide (laughs) comedically out the way, but it never happened. No, and you got. I I
3: was on that. I was on that. I'll I'll be honest. Um, There was, I think, there was one rehearsal where I can't remember who brought the wheelchair over, but um, they hadn't put the brake on, and it was just hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to. Um, seeing the doctors trying to put Louie in the wheelchair. So honestly, like during the shows as well, obviously that's the moment that Jennifer is just completely numb and distraught. And Mm. I would just out the corner of my eye, I'd just make, (laughs) if, um, the brake wasn't put on, I'd just move my hand slightly and, and put the brake on. And then once, uh, once Gareth was seated in the wheelchair, um I'd take off the break um just in case uh Andy Shaw you wheeling him off you didn't realize the break was
0: still on. <laughs> that, that could have been awkward so, yeah it's
3: like yeah it's like having this really distraught upset mm. face and then just yeah it was just funny
0: okay I have one last question for everybody um so we'll start with start with Andy Faber please um what are your abiding memories of the rehearsal process and of the performances? And do you have a favourite line or scene from the play?
5: Um, gosh, I remember it. It was a lovely camaraderie in the cast. It felt straight away that it was a we were like a, a family, and you don't always get that, but this one we did, um, and that helped the the flow of it. Um, I have to say, the uh, the audience laughter did take me by surprise. I, it, there are some lovely funny bits, but I have to say that. It was, hmm. I didn't realise quite, quite how funny it was. Um, uh, my favourite line has got to be, you ugly old devil. <laughs> my line. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right that, that was just uh, my favourite line ever. So, we can tell call. you really
0: relished in that I one. love that line. <laughs> <laughs> so, I really did, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Okay, and the same question to Gareth.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've got to say favourite scene is, is definitely um, being being moved from the chair to you know, sort of being being first helped to sit down then mo- moved about by all of these doctors sort of mm-hmm. you know, almost ragdoll like when you're supposed to be dead that was you know challenging but really fun to to do so I love that and also I really did enjoy doing the um sort of confrontation with um yeah with Chris in that that first bit of that confrontation mm-hmm. with the with the doctor scene when sort of all the accusations are first start coming out where there is a bit more of emotion to it and then obviously the doctors come in and now he's sort of in his full flow but that, that first bit where there is a bit more emotion going on as well, I've really enjoyed that Cool, and the same question to Hannah uh,
1: There are a lot of great moments in this play, um, my favourite line has to be, you are a scoundrel sir <laughs>
0: um,
1: I just loved hearing it the way the word scoundrel just is used uh, that's probably my favourite line Hmm. S- favorite scene. It's it's hard because I loved the uh, Garrett's character and his argument, as he said with, with uh, Chris and with the other doctors, and, and where you finally see his character and you go, oh, actually he is a bit of a nasty work. But I loved the work that uh, Chris and Steph put into that last scene. The the range of emotions between them when chris's Mm -hmm. character in particular finds out that he isn't going to get the woman of his dreams and from steph's point of view that she's discovered what this doctor is really like what he was really after Mm -hmm. and what really happened to her husband just the the pair of them were incredible um so i think between those two it's it's those have to be my two favourites.
0: And uh, let's hear from our, our doctor, um, Chris. What's what's your what are your memories? I must admit, I really
4: enjoyed doing the Doctor Salam. It was it was a great time, and uh, I enjoyed working with with everybody on the team. Uh, it was really really enjoyable to be with absolutely everyone. My favourite part of the plane, not surprisingly, is that last scene as well i mean the whole of it was just the intensity of it just made it great to do Uh, partly because being able to do it is just so fascinating being able to do it was great and partly because i don't get to do that sort of thing that often
3: Mm -hmm.
0: okay and finally to mrs dubedat steph (laughs) (laughs)
3: um i will say the the same as as Chris, my favourite scene um, was definitely that final one, and, um, and just uh, the the kind of emotions like bouncing off of each other. We really felt like f- just in that scene, I kind of just forgot that um, there was an audience and we were on stage. It just it just felt like we were in this little bubble and we were bouncing off of each other. It was it was really really great and yeah. um obviously I've I've um been able to work with um the rest of the cast on other projects um but I really do hope to work with with Chris again um someday someday soon hopefully oh, really um yeah. yeah but um I, I will say one of the big memories I have of just the whole thing is as I said earlier um this was my first project after about Probably. five years Um, so I, I do just, just want to say, um, if anybody listening to this, this podcast, if, um, if you know, you're struggling confidence wise and you want to get back into acting or you want to start acting, um, or, you know, you just want to get back raring to go after, after this, um, this global pandemic, then I really, really highly suggest, um, going to an open audition with unbound because it, it honestly has changed my life um coming into this this family as cheesy as it sounds i'm sorry um <laughs> oh. but uh yeah it's it really has and my confidence is just growing and growing
0: For more episodes of Tell Great Stories and lots of other great audio and video content, head over to unboundtheatre.co.uk or look up at Unbound Theatre on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or Soundcloud.